Nyala Kadich, Wajuk Nyunga Mort, Kayan Kadak, Nija Wajuk Nyunga Buja. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast has been recorded on the Wajuk Nyunga lands of Burlu, otherwise known as Perth. Well-being as we know it now has been constructed from a Western perspective. But what happens when we go back to the methods of well-being from the oldest continuing culture in the world? Welcome to Nyunga Wellbeing. I'm your host, Brooke Collard. I'm a Baladong Wajuk Nyunga woman with personal family ties to a lot of our interviewees. In Nyunga Wellbeing, I will be speaking to elders in the Nyunga community about a First Nations perspective on self and community care. One way of healing doesn't work for everyone, so that's why we are going to explore six ways from the lens of Nyunga elders. They will guide you on creating the tools for yourself and others on the path to self and community care. So make a cup of tea and listen to these Nens and Pops yarn about Nyunga well-being. Our first guest on Nyunga well-being is Kathy Pickett. Kathy Pickett works at Yorgum, who deal in healing with First Nations people who are a part of the Stolen Generations. Kathy has over 30 years' experience in working with mental health in a First Nations-led way. What does well-being even mean, especially because we're in a world where well-being is so westernised and, you know, people are promoting self-care. People like yourself come in and you're challenging that narrative where you're looking at things from a First Nations perspective. Yourself especially, you're looking at it from like a Nyunga perspective, especially working at Yorgum and working with older individuals. So I guess for me to start with, well-being actually means being well and healthy and that's in a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual whole body feeling healthy and well. So I know in the Western world, there is this sense of breaking things down. So health is over here and that's physical health. And then there's mental health and that's about mental illness usually or mental distress. And then there's spiritual health and that takes, you know, the church or religious beliefs. And so what I found was, you know, that as Aboriginal people, we never had that Traditionally, we were healthy people and holistically healthy, not just in our bodies or anything. I believe that the lifestyle we would have led as traditional people would have allowed that continual connecting to country, to to each other, to the world, the skies, to the stars. And that connection is so powerful. And I think we couldn't have survived as long as we did if we had not been well human beings, you know. So I realised early in my career that the colonising of Australia has created this terrible situation for Aboriginal people and accidentally or not meaning to, we've passed generationally, we've passed on our traumas to the next generation and then that generation has to deal with not only what we've passed on but what they're going through. And so every generation we see that We struggle, you know, so Aboriginal children are kind of, if you like, born disadvantaged in the fact that they're Aboriginal people, already a minority group that's marginalised. 
So they're already born into a kind of disadvantaged world. If their mother and father have struggled because they were stolen generation or had their own traumas, then then the next generation are going to struggle with that as well as what today our society can give Aboriginal people, which is not a lot. You know, we're still not accepted. We're still marginalised. We still have racism in this country. We still see lots of disadvantage. And, of course, there are exceptions, and some of our mob are highly successful. We have, you know, judges, teachers, nurses, doctors. So many of our mob have been successful in that Western way of thinking. But I think we all carry our own trauma from our own families that really interested me in working with Aboriginal people. You know, psychiatry doesn't really have a place for us. I mean, if somebody's mentally ill, sure, there could be something there for them. Psychology doesn't really have a place for us because it's not about healing. It's about continually dissecting and assessing, you know, your behaviour and your thinking, cognitive thinking and stuff. Whereas I like to think about you know, you can heal from trauma. You can heal from sexual abuse. It's very difficult. But if you are given a good worker, perhaps, or in an environment where healing can start to happen naturally, then I think healing can can come from that and breaking those cycles of trauma. And some of our mob, they, they struggled with all that trauma and, you know, left really confused about being an Aboriginal, who they were, and there's actually link-up services that have been funded for years throughout Australia, and their job is to reunify uh, stolen generations people back to sometimes it's parents, sometimes it's a graveside, so the parents have gone and they can try and do some kind of healing work by a reunification to grave or back to their country, their original country and things like that. Because of that era of the stolen gens who then came out confused and maybe never felt love or was told that they were worthy or had any kind of connection with anybody in a loving way, that they struggled to be parents themselves. And so that breakdown of the family structure and the parenting then led to children having to be placed into the modern day welfare. And so there are high levels of children in care right now to this day. We just have to keep going back to well, what happened and trying to understand why that happened and then why then have these children been placed in care? Personally, I've had family members who were a part of the official stolen generation, family members who have gone through institutions like DCP as well. And, you know, because we have been colonised as a country and they've come in with a Western version of what they think society should be as opposed to You know, we already had a culture here for thousands of years. We had our own laws, so L-O-R-E law. And it's just coming in again with that different perception of just how well-being is and things like that. Because you work in a space that is predominantly, you know, we say Wajala in Noongar, which means Caucasian. But I guess you coming in as a Noongar person yourself, working with First Nations people, you do specifically work with Stolen Generations people and helping them deal with various traumas. What difference would you say it makes coming in as a First Nations person yourself and speaking to them? When I first started working with our mob, and I've been doing it for nearly 30 years now, 
I mean, I started just as a receptionist and I would talk to the only psychiatrist in the Kimberley region at that time. And the people would come in, he'd fly in, it'd be once a month kind of thing. And so while they were waiting, I'd have a yarn with them. I was so interested in their stories. And I thought, I think I want to work more around this stuff because I don't think they're looking too good, you know, this mob that come in just to see the psychiatrist for really another medication injection to last them for a while. And they seem to have lost a lot of their spirit and their essence of who they were. So I really got interested in how our mob were so distressed, you know, they looked so stressed and distressed. So that's sort of how I started. And I found that Every Aboriginal person I've ever spoken to, no matter Kimberley, no matter where, I've really enjoyed the conversations because I love their story. I really honour their stories, I think, and stories are sacred. And as Aboriginal people, we don't have much, but we have our own story. And when you show that kind of respect and honour to an Aboriginal person, they respond. And so I found that Instead of going into training in psychology, which I'd worked with psychologists, clinical psychologists, and I didn't see how they could help our mob. They could only work individually in an office setting at that time in the Kimberley where there are masses of communities under a great deal of stress. And so I didn't think psychology could really help us except maybe in some of their theories. I knew psychiatry couldn't help us, but there was a lady called Judy Atkinson who I met in the Kimberley, and she was talking about trauma. And she eventually, you know, did a lot of work with us in the Kimberley, and I really started to see the impact of a healing circle and healing camps and how that could change a person's life and, you know, kind of change mine. So when she eventually got her whole course into Southern Cross Uni, I went over there and I did the Masters of Indigenous Therapies. I didn't want to do the other Western ways. I think they have a place. But for Aboriginal people, I want to see healing. I want to stop the generational trauma being passed on and the sadness and the depression and the misery so I thought, this is what we, we need healing. We need to break this cycle for our generations to come. And, I mean, you only just have to go into our juvenile justice prison, Bankshire Hill here, and it's full of Aboriginal kids. It's, it's the most saddest thing. We have to break this. Otherwise, those children are going to, if you like, graduate to a, an adult prison and that cycle of coming out and perhaps trying to have a family, but then kids being removed for whatever reason because the adults are still in trauma and hurting, then the cycle just keeps continuing. And like I say, it's generalising. There are some Aboriginal people that have broken these cycles and have become successful. So somewhere along their lives, they must have realised healing needed to happen and some way they did that. So... It's for the mob that are still struggling, that we want to help. And I guess that's part of our culture is to help the collective. And our history is so unique because we were traumatised collectively. So while we're all in different Aboriginal groups and language groups and skin groups and all of that, the one common thing we all share is the colonising of Australia and the trauma that created in our very delicately refined culture that we had, which had a way for us to survive for, we're talking 50,000, like even just thinking about that amount of years, 50,000 years to be conservative, that's such a long time. So something must have been working. (laughs) No prisons, no jails, no money. 
but they seem to survive. <laughs> yeah, we had our own system here before everything kind of came along. Yeah, I'd love to, I guess, go back to the point you were making about, you know, when you show a genuine interest in someone, like this is just a human trait, you know, they open up like other mob around the country. Like as long as you take a genuine interest and speak to them, you'll understand, especially in the Kimberley there, there was only... Once a month where you had the psychiatrist come up and they just prescribed things and it's sort of like a Band-Aid fix of the root problem really, isn't it? I guess that culturally we used to have, we call them yarning circles. Mm. It's basically like sitting around a fire and all speaking to each other and like you said, it's different than that one-on-one session because it was everyone around a circle. I guess those settings, how do you feel like that's different as opposed to one-on-one and having a group? Well, I think our culture, the Aboriginal culture, is collective and we're so tightly connected with each other. There is a level of reciprocity in our culture that means that I give to you, you give to me, we need each other, we depend on each other. And I think you can't individually look at someone in a family and try and work with that one person when the whole family is in that trauma. And so you work, what, with one person for one hour and then they go back to the very environment that they are struggling in. So all the things that we have done traditionally, like being together, at night perhaps we would make a fire and sit down and maybe some elder told a story and it was funny and all the kids were involved and there was a connectiveness there. And now, you know, it's sort of like come full circle because for people that have been in trauma, these are the kind of things we sort of promote. We say, go back out to country, touch country, have a fire pit there, talk. And they're not great things and they don't require a lot of resource except for maybe a vehicle to get out there. But things that we would do traditionally, we need to get back to. The things that we knew work for us and they still work for us. There's an absolute rise now in bush medicines. I'm glad there are people like Viv Hansen who are doing traditional kind of bush medicines, what works for us, what we used to use. Because I suppose when we were colonised, the knowledge keepers and the information down to the next generation was disrupted. And so a lot of knowledge didn't get through during those really dark days. So the fact that people are reviving it and language, you know, language in Noongar country was sort of not spoken fluently and, in fact, probably almost, we almost maybe lost it. Now I see a a rise, you know, from the generations coming, a hunger to learn language, and I think that's really positive and and good for our mob. So it interests me when white people meet each other or Wadjalas meet each other, they say, I am so-and-so, this is my job and this is what I do. And an Aboriginal person will go, who's your mob? Where you're from? Because we're trying to find that connectiveness, you know, like, so I'm going to introduce, hi, Brooke, where your mob from? And you're going to tell me, oh, from such and such. And I'm going to go, oh, I know a lady down there. So we're trying to find that connection. So that's our protocol stuff. And once we do that, then we get down to business. We don't jump into business. We do what we have to do. We do the protocol stuff first and then we talk business. And it takes as long as it takes, you know. And only an Aboriginal person would understand that. So I think that's why it works so well when Aboriginal people work with Aboriginal people. But then healing people is a hard work and there has to be a healer, heal thyself. So in order to work with our mob, because their stories are so painful and traumatic, hearing that if you are not in a place in your own heart 
that you've done some healing on yourself, then you can be really triggered and the thing they call vicarious trauma is real. So we have to be really careful as well. But it is such a nice thing to do working with your own mob in your own way, culturally. I love that. Speaking of protocols, you know, that's essentially what cultural awareness training is for organisations that are wanting to work with First Nations people because it's all about, you know, understanding we have a certain way of, I guess, it's paying respect to you. If I ask you, who's your mob? And, you know, someone over east might not know who I am, but I'm pretty lucky the Collards are a pretty big family. Big, big Noongar family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, for me, I'm quite privileged in that sense that I do know who my family is because there's a lot of people who don't. So I have that base at least. And it is a big family that it is kind of spread out everywhere. So usually yeah. I find at least one person knows who the Collards are. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it just reminds me of what you said. Like when I first met my pop Kuda, we were separated again by the stolen generation. So I never met him until I ended up volunteering mm. at an Indigenous organisation. And he started us off with that protocol before I got accepted in the position. It was, okay, before we get started, like, what's your name? Where were you born? Where have you been your whole life? Where have your parents been and where have your grandparents been? And it was that establishing how we were connected and through me telling him who my family was and where they'd been, we figured out we were actually very closely related and it was very emotional because, again, yeah, it's just going back to just how much the stolen generation has impacted us as a people and... You know, it was just over 200 years Mm. ago that colonisation properly started happening. You know, we didn't have alcohol. So the closest thing we kind of had was, you know, we'd steep things like bangsha flowers in water Mm. and it would slightly, very slightly (laughs) cement, but it was not enough and Mm. as concentrated as what was brought over. So we just didn't have the tools to be able to deal with it. So having to get rid, like, well, not rid of alcohol, but, you know, used to it as a society, like, we weren't prepared for what mm. was coming. So it reminds me of this story about my grandparents, especially my grandfather. So they applied for citizenship. Yeah, having to apply for citizenship yeah. in your own country. And that would have been in the early 1930s, I think. I read the letters that they wrote, and I could see they weren't written by them, but Someone obviously helped them to write it. And in the letter it said, um, I promise, yeah, I think it's like a promise that I won't live like an Aboriginal and I will do my best to live like a white man. Anyway, so they did get granted their citizenship and then my grandfather started to drink. And that was his way, I suppose, of I can do this now. I'm a human being like everybody else. But once he started to drink, that's when the domestic violence sort of came into the family So I think about this really tall, strong, proud man who was probably belittled and told he was a piece of crap and being belittled like that to a man and breaking his spirit so much that the only time he felt like a man was when he was drunk and then he brought it out and this monster sort of came out of him. And I guess that's the cycle, you know, so coming out and wanting to self-medicate because they had no love, they'd lost their mother and they might have been angry, they might have been depressed, they might have felt rejected. And so to feel good, alcohol was something they could use. And of course, then we know that alcohol creates all sorts of other problems because the pain that they had was just horrendous. And how do you live with that pain every day, you know, so... 
yeah, I really admire the old people, ancestors that went through the hard, hard days. In a way, we're lucky because, you know, we're starting to see all that hard work they did to fight for our rights and all of that is coming to fruition for our kids and the next generations coming. But, yeah, our poor ancestors, you know, what they must have went through and where all this pain might have originated from. I know some really good examples of how you're speaking about having to apply to be a citizen in your own country. The Kojanup Museum, which is headed on the way to Albany, has a really good example of that. They have the certificate papers and Mm. basically there is a line in there when you're applying to be a citizen that you have to denounce your family. That's possibly where a lot of that pain came from as well, is you had to sign a document saying... I'm not going to live as a First Nations person. I'm not going to have anything to do with my family. I'm not going to speak the language. I'm only going to speak English. Things like that is quite traumatic, you know, because you're denying your entire identity just to be able to live a life like another human being. But for a lot of Noongars, I think it's been extremely hard because we've got the city right on our country. So it'd be really hard to prove that you're connected to, I guess. Yeah, but that's the thing though. And just going back to how beautiful I think it is that young people are having this resurgence now where Mm. we've been shunned for so long that, you know, we weren't allowed to celebrate our culture. We weren't allowed to sing. We weren't allowed to dance, you know, singing, let alone speaking your language, getting to, you know, even eat your traditional foods because we were paid and like tea and sugar and flour Mm. and that's why you know we go back to a lot of health issues as well as because that's what we were paid in and we were fed all the land that we were on was completely cleared to bring over these new farming practices which are actually scarring the land now you can Mm. see especially in the wheat belt for example you can see all these areas that can't grow anything anymore Mm. because the salt table has risen and it's completely destroyed yeah just going back to you know connecting in the city I recently went in the city with a young Noongar fella, Elisha Jacobs, and he's very, like, culturally connected and, mm. you know, another of those strong, beautiful role models we have in our community. And we were surrounded by skyscrapers and he took me down these streets to say, this used to be quite important because this is where all the young boys used to be taken and right where we're standing there probably used to be a 600-year-old tree and there was a campsite right there. There used to be a spring that came up here and bubbled down to the mud flats just down there. So it's still there trying to break through, I guess, all the concrete that we've put on top. So, yeah, yeah I guess I see that as a positive thing. Yeah, I do too. It's still there. It's just, mm. you know, hidden underneath all the buildings we have right now. Personally, I feel that's my way of well-being is... I create stories through film and put that out there for people who possibly they might have been a bit prejudiced beforehand Mm. and hopefully it opens their eyes to make change. Yeah. yeah. When we say land back, things like that, we're not trying to kick people out of their houses. We're just saying, you know, we want to care for the country again and make Mm. it healthy. That recidivism going around and around all the time, you're like, there's so much work that we have to do. And so films are a great way, I think, of getting those stories out. And stories are sacred to me. So I love stories. (laughs) I really do love them. And then when you're sitting with someone, a broken person, and they tell you their story, it's such a humbling experience. And you know that for this person... They've been through so much and look how resilient this person is. You know, like I see such strength in our in our mob, in individually and collectively. 
And sometimes we can be our worst enemy. I get that. But I do see things are moving in positive ways. We still have a lot of stuff to do. But what we would call, you know, going back to country and take your shoes off and touch that ground, well, they call that grounding now. It's almost like Western ways of doing things are catching up. I think all the traditional practices we've had and that have survived today in contemporary Aboriginal culture, they're the things that we need to tap into, art, being on country, our country. So for Noongars, it's Noongar country. From wherever you come from, you must go back to your country because the healing is on that country. And sometimes the country is sad too, you know. So that connection to country is so important for our Aboriginal people. And then another way that helped me to, to work out my own healing and processes was doing a genogram of my family tree And I did that with my mother before she passed. We did that together. So I would really encourage people to do these sorts of things. People call it self-care. Well, yeah, okay. If that helps you, yes, it's all good. It's all healing, you know, and laughing is healing. And, um, you know, just doing good things is healing. So I want to tell our mob that if you are in these cycles of trauma and grieving, just one step and just do one thing for you and your kids And that might be having a picnic in the bush or something. Yeah, so just one step towards healing. Yeah, I guess a beautiful thing with Noongar culture, First Nations culture as well, is it's that continual passing down of knowledge as well. So, you know, it's really beautiful you had that chance with your mum to sit down and go through all that stuff because, you know, I've done similar with my mum as well where, like, we drove from Darwin all the way back to Margaret River. We were going through the wheat belt where she'd grown up a lot with her grandparents and she was pointing out all these shops and all these memories and stories were coming out that wouldn't have otherwise. So mm. it's funny, isn't it, how I guess our older people, they won't necessarily talk about themselves mm. unless you prompt them a lot of the time. So, yeah. It's so true. And, and a lot of our stolen gen never shared their stories with their families. They just kept that pain inside and just got on with it, you know. Like I can remember the kind of attitude of my grandparents were like, just you just got to keep going, get on with it. You know, you got no time to sit around feeling sorry for yourself or feeling any kind of pain that you're in. But I think a lot of the stolen gen, the trauma was so deep that they came out, tried to put it behind them and build a family. And then maybe for some that pain was just too great. And so then they start self-medicating and then that created other problems. So, yeah, it's there's amazing stories out there of survival and other people escaping from Moore River. And, yeah, I, I just love talking to our people. They've just a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, I like what Viv Hansen says, um, no Noongars are wrong. You know, what you learnt is what was available to you from your knowledge holders in your family and, and I'm sure they were doing the best they could, you know. Yeah, like that's it because so much knowledge has been lost because, again, mm. all those government implementations and then there's also a lot of shame involved. So I feel like that's a big thing of First Nations people too is because we've been taught to not be proud for so long that it's overcoming that barrier of being shame. We should be quite proud because we are the oldest continuing culture in the world. Amazing, yeah. amazing. So I was writing my proposal and I'm at the part of proposing my research for the university to give me confirmation. And so one of the things I have to speak about is writing research in a worldview that is described by a Western 
Eurocentric mm. ways of thinking. And so my argument was, you know, I'm a Noongar. I have Noongar worldviews. And if you consider that Aboriginal people were here for thousands of years, then you could sort of say that Aboriginal worldviews are the oldest worldviews in the world because <laughs> I just think it's silly that Indigenous worldviews are not accepted in the academia setting. But it's changing, but, you know. So that's that eldest living continuing culture. It's just incredible when you think about it. It's such a precious gem and the government don't seem to want to have that gem. There's that continual clash between a Eurocentric world like the Westminster system in England and it's a very confrontational system. You have one side sitting here and one side sitting here and our worldview is you have a group of elders that sit around in a circle. There's no hierarchy. Everyone elder is equal and they share the wisdom and the knowledge for the good of the collective. That's why I just work on the ground. I just want to do the healing work with the mob and offer whatever wisdom or knowledge I know. I want to hand that over um, as I get on in life. And the PhD I want to do is also kind of a handing down, leaving it there. This, this is my knowledge and I want to leave it here for the next generation sort of thing, which is what we do in our culture. It's, it's that knowledge holding and passing knowledge down to our younger mob. So you've updated to those times to keep, again, like one of the oldest methods of keeping yeah. our knowledge, which was storytelling, keeping it down for the next generation. And I guess um, with your PhD that you're doing as well is another area that, you know, you're breaking barriers because it's talking about, again, you're in another um, westernised institution coming in yeah. with um, a First Nations perspective and you're coming in to say, well, this is my lived experience and then, you know, you're helping them understand what yeah. your lived experience has been and bringing that into your papers and then there'll be younger people who can look up to people like yourself to be like mm. here's someone who broke through those barriers as well to help people understand us more. This is actually where it came into when I managed a clinical psychologist and she didn't know how to do what I would just go yep okay I'm on it. So I was like go out to the community and uh, we need to organize to talk to some people out there and set up some time. We want to look at how many women we could get involved in something like a healing and that. And she said, I can't do that. And I was like, what do you mean? You're a clinical psych. Tell me you're the creme de la creme. Trauma has to be talked about. Neuroscience is catching up with it. They're finally saying, yes, trauma affects the brain. So now that science is on board, people are kind of more open to it and listening to what the experts are saying about how trauma can affect Racism can affect the brain. Poverty can affect the brain. And our poor people out there struggling, you know, every day, I, I just really feel for them. So there's a lot of information and knowledge that we need to get out to our mob because they're smart people and I think they can do things to help themselves and their families if they have the knowledge. And so it's not traditional knowledge anymore. It's about other knowledge about breaking cycles and things like that. You said it really well the other day because you were talking about the sort of pyramid that you see in how it works. So in, in the mental health field, when I first started, you know, 30 odd years ago, it was and explained to me this way, and I still think it exists today. Under mental health comes mental illness, comes well-being, comes social emotional well-being, comes all these labels. And the workers in these fields, it's like a hierarchy. 
and a triangle or pyramid, if you like. And at the top of the pyramid, the, the gods of mental health are psychiatrists. And they're very expensive people, like they get the highest wage and they do a lot of prescribing of tablets to keep the symptoms of mental illness down. And there's no discussion about healing. It's just living with or maintaining a mental illness. So they're the, they're the top of the pyramid. And then the next ones under are like psychologists. And within the psychology field, the clinical psychologists are the best or the highest because they've done like six years of amazing study. I'll give it to them. But they are also talking about assessing people's personalities and cognitive thinking, but not a lot of healing or working with the people. So they give all these assessment psychology tests out and then they count up all the scores and they go, well, according to these scales, which were developed by some probably middle-aged, upper-class white men who, you know, kind of write the DSM book, which is the... um, Bible for mental health for psychiatrists and psychology and all of that. So the DSM has all the diagnosis and symptoms and all of that. That's written by people that I have no connection with. They're in another country. They're usually white men. They're usually psychiatrists and they write this thing and then they upgrade it every year. And then the mental health profession use that as like their Bible. So there's a psychiatry, then there's psychologists, clinical psychs on top, and then they go down in order. And then you might see social work, you know, clinical social workers. So the pyramid comes right down and on the bottom of the pyramid are the ones that are actually working in the community, in the coalface. So these sorts of workers, they're on the bottom of the pyramid. They're probably the lowest paid but they're probably the highest skilled in working and actually working with people and seeing the distress right in the coalface. So that kind of pyramid, I think, still exists. But we have a lot of Aboriginal psychologists and to their credit, they do talk a lot about you know how to work in a trauma-informed way with our mob and things like that. We need people out there on the ground helping our mob in prison, helping our kids integrate back into community when they get out of care, you know, child protection care, and they're struggling. It's like stolen gen again. Um, They're disconnected. They need to reintegrate. How can you help us in those fields? And only an Aboriginal person would understand that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's that Aboriginal psychologist looking at trauma and how can they contribute to the well-being of our community. Not Noongar, I'm talking about Aboriginal community. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even speaking about how you worked remotely as well, that's something else you've got to think about constantly with First Nations people is do they have the resources to even seek help in the first place? I helped recently do a video out in the Wheat Belt where they're helping Noongar people develop their own businesses and giving them the tools to be able to run off without them because they want to make themselves redundant as an organisation later to say, you know, we've helped these people and now they can just go off. They don't need us anymore. And they were saying, you know, when they first started, they didn't even realise thinking things like, does this person have fuel in their car to come to these seminars? Do they have credit? Do they have an email to respond to us? And it's considered... Do they have internet, you know? (laughs) Yeah, do they even have internet? You know, like it's things like that that they didn't consider because they just assumed that they already had those resources available. And then again, going remote, it's just going to be even less... Yeah available to them so you know especially mental health working out there it would be very tough because they don't have the support out there that they necessarily need because you know the good old saying where it says money doesn't buy happiness but it does buy stability and then that Mm. can help there's so many other things taking that pressure off of living in poverty and 
being worried about, like you said, like where's my next meal coming from? Have I got everything to provide for everyone? There's no blanket treatment for everyone. What are some tools that you give them or some things that you encourage people to do to make themselves feel better? Well, if I take the time we were in that community, um, that really remote community, we were invited out there by the nurses because of the high number of suicides. And so before we went out there, they kept saying, and talk about this, and then I'll make sure you mention that and talk about this. And so I was thinking, this is strange. But anyway, me and the team, we all flew out because from Broome, it was a long way. We had to drive to Halls Creek, then get a little Cessna plane into the community. That's how remote it was. And so um, we were all ready to do suicide prevention. That was our thing. We were ready. We had all our stuff. And that morning we started. Um, you could see the you know nurses rounding up people, bringing them in. They were all half asleep with their dogs and everything. And I'm thinking... They don't even look like they want to be here. So they left us with the people, the ones that were supposedly doing the youth suicide to address this suicide that was in the community. And they were just sort of sitting there really kind of, I'm not sure if they even wanted to be there or if they even had breakfast or anything. But we said to them, these people have invited us here to talk to you about youth suicide. What do you think? And there was no response. And then we said, okay, what do you want to talk about? (laughs) And it took a bit of um, encouraging. But finally they said, well, we want you to go and talk to that shop there and tell them to stop selling cigarettes to our young kids. Now, I thought, wow, that's so far away from suicide. And eventually they got to the suicide. But we had to do all of that to let them know that we were here to listen to their voice. Then they got really excited and we said, okay, so what can we do about this suicide that's happening here? Because it's your community, it's not my community, this is yours. And sometimes it's just just someone to listen to me. I just want to be heard. And in the communities, we heard that really loud and clear. We want to take control over this, but no one's giving us this opportunity. So, you know, they're the kind of experiences I've, had in remote area and I suppose individually with anyone I've spoken to, if you tell them what the solution is, it's not going to work. It has to come from the people. They have to own it. And so people want to give you the solution if you just ask them. Even in those most saddest communities, you know, we just need to empower them and let them control the community because like is that really the heart of a concept to grasp is listening to what someone Mm. needs instead of telling them what they need (laughs) yeah I guess um to wrap things up Mm -hmm. if you could leave um a little message possibly to future generations what would Mm. you want to leave behind well what I want for my own grandchildren and great-grandchild that's coming soon is to let them know that (laughs) it's those from the movie I can't help it I love movies you are smart you are (laughs) (laughs) you are smart you are what's the word you are smart you are smart you are important important. oh no I did it wrong (laughs) you are smart you are kind Kind and you are important that's the most important thing to tell our kids is you matter you know I want my grannies to know that you are someone, you matter. Even if it's just me, you matter. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Noongar Wellbeing. 
with me, Brooke Collard, and my guest, Kathy Pickett. You can find more episodes at sbs.com.au slash Wellbeing, or follow the series in podcast apps like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the SBS radio app.